This morning we want to talk about perspectives and how perspectives matter. We just heard a song that talks about our perspective about who God is. And while we can use words that talk about him as king of the world, do our lives, how we see life, what we choose to believe, align ourselves with that, or do we make God in our own image? Or do we do what we've been studying about in Ecclesiastes, where we just kind of set God aside, pretend he's not there, and we pursue life looking for meaning, purpose, happiness apart from God. I want you to take your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes. For those that are visiting, we've been doing a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's fascinating because what Solomon tells us is this. What we choose to focus on becomes our reality. What we choose to believe becomes our reality. But there are consequences to that. And so Solomon pursues life, setting God aside. And he tries everything and anything from becoming the most powerful and rich man in the world to being the most educated to being the largest party animal that existed. He pursued every single avenue that we seek personal meaning and fulfillment in. And at the very end, here's his conclusion. He starts out, thus saith the preacher. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. In other translations, empty, empty, meaningless, meaningless. So his conclusion is simply that if you take this perspective that God does not exist, your life will be empty. What Solomon does is he confronts our discontent. Now, discontent is not necessarily a bad thing. If you're not satisfied with your walk with Christ, it compels us then to pursue Christ. That's a good discontent. But the discontent that Solomon is referring to is the kind of discontent that leads us to be unhappy. It leads us to lack joy. It leads us to this emptiness, this meaninglessness, this purposelessness. It's the kind of discontent that causes us to make stupid choices. And to waste life pursuing things and circumstances that can never fill this God-sized hole in us. It's the kind of discontent that leads us to develop destructive habits, addictions, and compulsive behaviors. It's the kind of discontent that we look at ourselves and we don't like the way we look on the inside, so we try to control the outside. And we try to create an illusion that we are better than we are. And so we nip it and tuck it and dye it and put all kinds of things to try to make us look differently than we see ourselves. It's the kind of discontent that compels us to be people pleasers rather than God pleasers. It's the kind of discontent that leads us to dark places. And sometimes those places are so dark that we sense there's no reason to live. The number one prescription medication in America is for antidepressants. See, discontent is a heart issue. It's not a money issue. It's not a circumstance issue. It's not a lifestyle issue. It's why Solomon, when he wrote the book of Proverbs, says things like this. Incline your heart to understanding. Wisdom will come to your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Let your heart keep my commandments. Let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep your heart with all diligence. A wise heart will receive commandments. 
in the wisdom literature section of scripture, this word heart is found 266 times. So Solomon confronts our discontent. Now we have to confront our own discontent in our culture. We live in a culture of discontent. It's what drives our economy. I mean, think about the fashion industry. Think about stuff. Think about everything that we buy, sell, and achieve to obtain. Somebody somewhere has to convince us they got to create discontent that you need the latest and the newest and whatever it is. I mean, it's why fashions change. It's why debt is a proof that we listen very well to those voices. And it's why our national debt is proof that we are a nation of discontent, so much so to our harm. See, it's the kind of discontent that our constant not liking what we see in the mirror is proof of our discontent. And we really do not trust God. We do not trust that his design is the best. And this is one of the reasons why we have to be so intentional when it comes to discipleship. I mean, here's what happens. If we allow discontent to fill our hearts, then we become cynical. Now, if you want a definition of cynic, here it is. A cynic is someone who believes their eyes are open and everyone else is closed or blind. (laughs) A cynic is someone that believes... Their reality is the only reality that exists. A cynic is someone that says, please don't confuse me with the facts. I see what I see. I know what I know. That's the end of statement. And there's a lot of things that make us cynical. I have a friend that used to work for the Clinton um, presidency and the Bush presidency. He's no longer in Washington, D.C. And if you talk to him, he's what we call an Eeyore. You know what Eeyore is? Winnie the Pooh, Eeyore? Eeyore is discontent with everything. And if you talk to him, he has nothing positive to say about our political structure. Now, some of you might be saying amen, but, you know, that's your reality. Now, there's several different ways I could deal with this passage this morning, but let's remember, Solomon is saying this, that if you pursue life without God, and he tried it all, He was the smartest, most educated. He had the largest amount of stuff. We talked about the tonnage of gold that he received every year. He had the highest, most powerful position. There was no one in history other than Christ that was above him in intelligence, wisdom, and wealth. Solomon says, listen, it will not give you what you long for. It will leave you empty. Your life will be like a bucket with no bottom. And when life confronts you with mysteries that we cannot fathom or solve on a human level, they will leave you desperate and in despair. As you seek to control your own destiny, as you seek to control everything around you and find answers that you cannot find. And whatever you attempt to understand and fill your life with, if God is not in the equation, it will leave you meaningless. That's his conclusion. I guess the question is, are we willing to accept his analysis? Or are we the kind of people that say, you know what? Here's my reality. Here's how I'm going to pursue it. And it will come out differently. 
Now, there's many different ways I could break this passage down. We're in chapter 6, by the way. Chapter 6. And I chose to do it three ways. And we'll put these on a screen later, but here they are. Solomon, again, reminds us that riches without God will not bring enjoyment. And you say, well, he's talked about this a lot. Yes, we need to hear that a lot because most cultures are really bent on stuff will make us happy. Number two, work without God will not satisfy. And three, life is full of questions without answers. So that's kind of the outline we're going to go through, and we'll put that a piece of the time. So let's look at the first. Riches without God will not bring enjoyment. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, and, and note the phrase there, because he's starting to interject this whole God picture. Before, it was totally out. But he says, a man whom God gives wealth. You understand that whatever you possess, God has given to you. Everything's a gift. We looked at it last week. You may think that you've earned it. You just happen to be in a position where you could earn it. There's many countries, like the one I would visit frequently, Zimbabwe, that has 92% unemployment. It doesn't matter how talented you are. You would not be able to gain wealth there because of the political system under President Mugabe. So a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. So here's what he's saying. Wealthy, powerful people are frequently unsatisfied when they attain the very things they set their sights on. And how many stories do we have to read whether they're in gossip magazines or on the news, where extremely wealthy people end up taking their life because they find no meaning and purpose. So he's just telling us what we already know, and yet there's part of us that doesn't quite believe it, saying, well, if I had that wealth, if I had that fame, if I had that position of power, we think we're the exception. And yet as parents, we tell our teenagers who try things and we try to teach them not to do those things and they think they're the exception and we get frustrated because they live that way. Where do they learn it from? Raise your hand, look in the mirror. They learn it from us. Then he adds this to the equation. In verse three, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years... So that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. He also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place? And there's the beginning part of some questions. I mean, here's what he's saying. You could live 2,000 years. You could be the richest, most wealthy, most powerful. You could have kids. You could have grandkids, great-grandkids. By then, you'd probably have great, 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 great grandkids. And all those kinds of things are supposed to make us happy. And they should make us happy. But he says, without God into the equation, they will leave you empty. You come to the end of your life and you'll say, who's going to show up at my funeral? Might be a few people that show up that really want to make sure we're dead because we've been around 2,000 years. They're like, come on. 
But he's stressing the point because this is where he's lived. This is who he's been. I mean, with a thousand wives, he has a lot of kids. And a lot of grandkids. And with his palaces and summer houses and his bishops and his king and the wisdom God gave him. But is your perspective this morning that do you believe what he's saying? I mean, look at our culture. We're one of the wealthiest and most powerful culture in the world. And yet America is now describes the culture of divorce, rehab, and suicide. You know what we're telling the rest of the world? It's not much fun to be here. So it goes back to the question, how do you define success? Now he's already talked about his own funeral. And he's kind of speculating is that no one's going to remember me. But I'm curious if you take that question and you go to a retirement home and, and ask them to find success, I bet you would get different answers than if you asked the 20-somethings. I taught in a college in Canada, and when you ask that question, it's fascinating the kind of answers you get. Most of them had to do with, well, I want this job. I want this kind of money. I want to retire by the time I'm 50. Those are the top three answers. When you ask them what you want people to remember them for at their funeral, all they said, I want to be a loving father, loving mother. Had nothing to do with money, achievement, or status. So if that's her perspective, the question I'd always ask, well, how are you going to live in such a way that people remember you that way? Because I guarantee if you pursue the job and the money and the wealth, that's not going to be your obit. Now, when I ask you this morning, I want you to think about the church. And by the church, I'm talking about the one church around the world. But you can think about this church, too. How do you define success when it comes to church? Now, we know the church in America has been driven by preferences and human tradition and expectations. Human expectations. We know the church in America, we know more what we're against than what we're for. Is that how you define success? Everybody around me believes the same thing, can dot their I's and cross their T's just like me. Now, later this morning, we're going to be having a baptism. And these are people who decided to jump off the treadmill of life they were on, and they make a simple proclamation. I choose Christ. And I have to tell you that this is my dream for GBC. That people set aside their agendas, they set aside their preferences, and they loudly declare, I choose Christ. They loudly declare that they are followers of Jesus. Not necessarily members of a particular denomination. And in choosing Christ... What that means is that we honor him for who he is. We heard about, you know, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the king of this world. We fill our hearts with Christ, and therefore we fill our hearts with contentment. And that leads to our transformation. Inside the body, there's incredible diverse unity, which means we're going to be different. And we're going to have different preferences. But our purpose is the same. Transformation means we let go of our resources. We invest them in seeking kingdom of God stuff. 
Transformation means that we will not be anxious during the political election. (laughs) It means that we're content. Not with what we think we should have or think that we need, but we have a very clear vision of what we are called to be. We live for the glory of God. Now, if you look at one of our brochures at GBC, there's a little phrase in there that I borrowed from a ghetto in Africa. And one man said this, and I love this, and this is my heart for GBC. Our desire is to be a church that dreams and hungers for God to restore all lives lost. So, how are you defining success? How are you defining contentment? We have to understand, if we want contentment, that riches without God will not bring that kind of contentment. Here's the second point. Work without God will not satisfy. Let's look at verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth. That just simply means he works so he can have money to buy food. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. And that simply means that every day at breakfast we're hungry, at lunch we're hungry, at supper we're hungry. Sometimes when you go to bed you're hungry, right? For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man who, who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. And he's simply saying this, you know, no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you eat, it's never going to bring you what you thought it would. I mean, how many times have people arrived at where they set out for and when they got there, it just wasn't what they expected? When I was in Canada in the early 1990s in in church planning, and and you know how God arranges circumstances? And sometimes we don't like those circumstances. But God arranged circumstances, and we arrived at a city called Barrie, and my wife was just about ready to deliver Brianna. So he tells you how long ago this was. And I got a call from the denomination. They pulled our funding. So there we were in a strange city, two kids, one on the way two weeks later in a cold turkey plant, and we had absolutely nothing. No way to pay bills, no way to plant a church. Now, God arranged that because I got an opportunity later that week that I would not have looked at before, and it was to work at a local college called Georgian College. And a very long story how I got there, very long story that the president didn't want me there, gave me six-month trial basis, And later on, through a whole set of circumstances, we became good friends. I'm sitting with him at lunch one day, and here's what he told me. He says, you know, he goes, my wife and I have arrived at all our goals in terms of our jobs. He was president of a very large college. They had about 30,000 students. She had a promising career in counseling. She was the head of the counseling department at at a local college. And he sat there, and here's what he said. He goes, you know, my wife and I have attained all our goals in life we set out for. I got a great job. Money's not lacking. We have all the stuff we want. We got family. We got kids. We're hoping for grandkids. And then he said this. You know, when we were first married and we lived in a tiny apartment in Toronto and we were broke, we had nothing. 
My wife took a job to pay the bills while I worked in my doctorate. He said, we were a lot happier and content then. Now, I got news. And feel free to communicate these to the two people I'm going to mention. I got news for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump that winning the presidency of this country will not fix what's wrong inside of them. It may be their goal. It may be their highest achievement. But when they get there, they're going to look in the mirror and they're going to be the same person they were the day before. And I have news for you and for me. Getting that promotion, receiving that raise, achieving that lifelong dream, getting the perfect spouse will not fill what only God can fill. So here's the third point. Life is full of questions without answers. That frustrates us because we want to fix things, don't we? Now, I'm going to back up to verses 6 and verse 8 because he starts the questions there. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet... Enjoy no good. Do not all go to the same place. It's kind of like the question, well, we all die. We try not to. We try to live as long as possible. But even if you live 2,000 years, you will die. And he's like, why? I mean, what's the purpose of that? In verse 8, what advantage has the wise man over the fool? Wise men die. Foolish men die. Wise men get hungry. Foolish men get hungry. And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? So here's a fool that that knows all the right things, but it gets him nowhere. And then he says this in verse 10. It's kind of this interlude. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And what is known, and it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. And what he says this, and let me translate this. He's saying, you know, it's no use trying to argue with God. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of answers. And we can do and use our logic and use our rationale and use our sense of fairness and our sense of justice. But when it gets down to sitting at the feet of God, we might as well not argue with God. Why? Because he's a whole lot smarter than we are. And he sees a very broad picture and we only see a very narrow picture. And then here's more questions in 11 and 12. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? You ever know someone that can really talk well and really communicate well and really kind of pull people to their side? He said, you know what? It's nothing but emptiness. For who knows what is good for a man while he lives a few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. I mean, this is not a fun book to read, is it? I mean, this guy is seriously depressed. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So here's what Solomon's doing. He says, I've been where you think you want to be and go. And what I'm trying to prove to you by writing Ecclesiastes is that it's a dead end. But he says, I want to show you a way out. The way out is not the change of circumstances. The way out is to center God in the mix, to make a choice. And so every single one of us have this attitude this morning. We can choose, I choose Christ. Or we can say, you know what? 
I'm going to adapt Christ to the way that I want him and I'm going to mold him in my image. Or we can say, I'm just going to get rid of Christ. I'm going to pretend he doesn't exist. Those are the three choices. So, are you the exception this morning? Do you have to learn for yourself? When I graduated high school, I needed a year off because I was not fond of what we call a structured educational system. I knew I was going to college. I knew what God had called me to be, but I just needed a break. And so I went to San Francisco and I worked in what they call voluntary service for a year at a mission in some other places. I remember one evening, uh, one of the young ladies in the mission, not in the mission, in our VS group, and again, we had rules about what we could and couldn't do and curfews and things like that because, you know, being where we lived is actually a dangerous part of the city. Usually someone in our city block was killed at least once a week. But one evening, she decided to take off with one of the men on his motorcycle. Didn't know who he was. He just was a sojourner through the city. He happened to be at the mission that night. That was a no-no. And so we took shifts, along with the pastor, waiting for her hopeful, safe return. And once you know it, it was my shift that she got home. It was 3 a.m. in the morning. I remember she came through the door. She saw me, and she was offended that somebody was waiting up to see if she was okay. And of course, me, being highly intelligent at the age of 18... I gave her all these reasons about what could have happened, you know, from, from death to murder to a whole host of things. And, of course, I had to add that there's the rule. And, you know, Pastor Hill is supposed to watch over you for your parents. And she got mad at me, and she looked at me, and she said this. She goes, well, I guess I have to learn for myself and went to bed. I'll never forget that conversation. Because it made me think about how many times I say that to God or say that to an adult who shares their experience or say that to someone who is wiser than me, who's been there and done that. But I sit there and say, you know, I just have to learn this for myself. So where are you at this morning? Are you willing to learn from Solomon? Or do you want to take matters into your own hands? See, you can live for self even though you claim to be a believer. So where are you at? We're going to stop here for a moment. And we're going to have time of worship through song. And then we're going to baptize individuals who are saying, I choose to follow Christ. I hope that's a testimony for every single person here that when we leave this place, we make that same confession. Amen? So let me pray for you. Then I'm going to go out and get ready with them. And you guys are going to enjoy worship together, praising God. And think about the words that you sing because it's just not about, hey, I like the song. The words are there for a reason. And they are to elevate our hearts and to worship to an audience of one. But let's pray together. Father God, Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you give us a choice. And I pray that all of us, we learn from Solomon that uh, riches and work, and even though we have a lot of questions, we simply have to trust you and sit at your feet. So thank you for who you are. Thank you that we can be here this morning and worship. 
Thank you that you, even though that we are sinners, that you forgive us, you walk with us, and we got to do the same for each other. But help us, Lord, to be wise. Help us to keep our focus on you. And may we celebrate what you are doing in our life. Uh, We know that's not always easy. But we want to be a blessing to this world. We want to be light and salt to a world that so desperately needs to see Christ. We pray these things in your name. And everyone said, amen. As depressing as Solomon sounds, here's what he's saying. First is that only God can satisfy the human heart. Not your job, not your spouse, no amount of money or stuff, no amount of getting involved in just causes. And so he's saying, listen, look at life as a gift. Enjoy the blessing of a God right now. And that's why Paul writes these words in Philippians 4 verse 8. Not that I'm speaking out of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then he talks about how he knows what it's like to have and not have. And he knows what it's like to, to be going well, but also in prison. He knows what it's like to be beaten and stoned for his cause. He says, in all these circumstances, listen, in Christ I am content. So, the first point is, only God can satisfy the human heart. Number two, we must live for a higher purpose. Many people, they talk about developing life plans. They do this in high school. They actually do it coming out of prison. They do it in addiction recovery houses. And of course, the life plan includes jobs, getting married, getting clean, retirement, obtaining success in terms of a human perspective. Living for a higher purpose means you need to choose the mission that God has designed in you. The short of that is you're called to be a follower of Jesus. Whether you do or not, whether you choose to be a follower of self, your design is you're called to be a follower of Jesus. And so he's called you to use what he has given you. It's not, well, you know, once I get this, then I can. Or if I had that, then I can. He says, listen, right now, right at this place, lay it at my feet. I'll take care of you. So whatever money, whatever gifts, whatever talents, whatever job I've given you, I want you to use it for me and my glory. Now, most of us like to fix our circumstances and and fix our relationships and, and fix our income. But that's not, that is not the center of contentment. We got to accept our destiny. Now, you know, one of the big lies today, and I hear it in commercials, I hear it in educational systems, I hear people talking about this. The big lie today is you can be anything you want. That's the big lie. I want to be six foot 10 and I want to play in the NBA. (laughs) I don't care how hard I work. I will never be six foot ten because God didn't design me to be six foot ten. So accepting our destiny is seeing what God has formed in us and through us. Everything from how we look to who we are to our taste, our preferences, our likes, our dislikes. And we lay him at his feet and we accept the fact that he has put us in an incredible mission. And what I find fascinating is it says that, you know, he works with us. I mean, imagine God working alongside. So you do what you can, and then he does what he does. 
So we must live for a higher purpose. Here's the third. We must live with faith in Christ. Now, I I say that because perspectives matter. What we choose to believe is what forms us. And that's true for everything. That's true about the food. It's true about our politics. It's true about our educational system. What we choose to believe is, you know, it's kind of like computer language. They say garbage in, garbage out. Your, Your computer will respond exactly how you program it. Now, we live with faith in Christ. Do you know why? Because he's smarter than us. Amen? Amen? Now, some of you might not believe that. By that, you're willing to admit that he's smarter than you, but you live as if you're the smartest person in the world. Remember what Solomon said. I can be the most wise person, but I can act like a fool. When I remove God from the picture... When I pretend he doesn't exist, when I pursue life in my terms, on my agenda, on my dreams, on my desires, on my preferences, and I attained everything that I set out to attain, he goes, it is all meaningless. It is empty because Christ is a whole lot smarter than me. And this is where trust comes in. The word faith is translated sometimes believe, is translated sometimes trust. So all three of those ideas are wrapped up. What it also means is that we live following him even when we don't have all the answers. Why? Because he's sovereign, we are not. Sovereign is a big fancy word for he is in control. And we're not. Like Joel said this morning, we like to think we're in control. And we pretend we're in control, and we act like we're in control, and we boss everybody around like we're in control, but we're not. To come before the feet. Now, are these guys ready to go out? They're not quite there yet. Okay. I want to make sure they get out. So here's what I hope you learned this morning through the baptism. And um, I hope that you, too, can choose Christ. And for those that have already chosen Christ, this is probably a time that you want to re-up saying, you know what, I've been, I've been following Christ on my terms and not his. And you need to leave this place this morning saying, okay, Christ, your terms, your way, your circumstances. I'm not defined by my circumstances. I'm defined by you. And whatever you bring into my life, I will deal with in terms of how you want me to deal with that. Then there's some people here this morning that have never chosen Christ. It's not been on your radar. You've been so busy trying to figure out life and you've been chasing everything and blaming everyone and every circumstance that you just really never have done what these three individuals have done. They've chosen Christ. So if you're here this morning, I want to give you that opportunity and how we do that here and You don't need to be afraid of this because everybody here is on your side. You know, if you want to follow Christ this morning in terms of never having followed him before, and you want to declare that this morning like these three did, I just want you to stand up and we're going to put somebody with you to help you navigate that. So is there someone here that would like to choose Christ this morning that hasn't? And you might have to yell at me because the light's shining right in my eyes and I really can't see a whole lot of things in the shadows. Is there anyone?
Okay, they're out there. They're sitting down in the front pew. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray with you. Then we're dismissed. And feel free to come down and congratulate them and, and join in their crusade of following Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you are incredible, even though we don't really know the full extent of that. Forgive us for how we try to control you. Forgive us how we don't embrace you as an audience of one, but we allow other idols and gods into our lives. And, and when we crash and burn, we just want to blame you and try to fix it ourselves. May we trust you with a childlike faith. May we trust you that, and believe that you love us and that you will always be with us. There's times that we feel so alone. We realize it's alive, Satan. But may your spirit minister to us in those times. And we find ourselves in dark places like Solomon talks about. We, we achieve and we get to places we thought would fill us and doesn't. May we find our fulfillment in you and you alone. But I thank you for these three this morning. Thank you for Paul and for Ivan and Melinda. I thank you for this body. I thank you for your son who made all this possible. It's his body. It's his dream. It's his mission, his purpose. And what an incredible privilege that we get to be on that and be a blessing to a world around us. No matter what circumstances we face, your light can shine bright in the midst of any kind of darkness. May we live that way this week, Lord, till we see you face to face. And everyone said, amen. God bless. You're dismissed.